Mark chapter 14 and verse 26. This morning in Mark, we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And before I read, I want to remind us that what we are about to read is God's word about his son. So we come to it with anticipation, with a sense of privilege and honor at the sacredness of it. We come to it anticipating God meeting us right where we are, revealing himself to us right where we are, capturing our spiritual attention. So let's pray that he would do that even as we read. Let's begin reading in Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. 
seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth, ran away naked. Lord, by your Spirit, bless the preaching of your Word. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Perhaps you're not a literature person, but you may have heard that line. (laughs) It's the beginning of a Christmas carol. The Marleys were dead to begin with. It's a capturing opening line. There are others like that in literature. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, said Charles Dickens. There There are others, and you might have your favorite opening line, preludes, opening lines, things that introduce us, they're, they're valuable, they're, they're meant to do something, they're meant to capture our attention. If you've ever read a really great introduction to a book or an opening soliloquy, I was thinking this morning, Richard III, you may not be a Shakespeare, Shakespeare person, but it's a great opening soliloquy. Now is the winter of our discontent, he begins. Opening lines, preludes, they're they're meant to capture our attention. They're meant to tell us in hint form what's coming, the story that is to come, the magnitude that is to come. They're meant to cause us to say, you really need to keep reading because here is what is contained in the story to come. And there is no more sacred, more precious, more impacting prelude than the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is a prelude unlike any other. From here, we receive a vantage point to understand and appreciate and value the story that is coming, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is a a sacred vantage point, a vantage point that's meant to entice us, to compel us, to challenge us, to provoke us. It draws us in and informs us of the story that is to come. It is is precious to us. Actually, Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian, says, The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. It is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Spurgeon adds his thought this way. He says, Jesus himself must give you access to, to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden, bidding you put your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon we stand is holy ground. If I had a single appeal this morning, it would just be to repeat Spurgeon's words that you would enter the garden. You would enter the garden with Jesus. I pray you do that this morning. I pray you would do that repeatedly. I pray that on a regular basis you would enter this 
garden. You would memorize this scene, so to speak. You would get to know the details. You would notice the very specific language that is used. You would begin to to get to know this garden as if you were there personally. Because from this garden, we have a perspective about Jesus and about the story that is to come unlike any other. We are given a privileged view, an insider's view, you could say, of the resolve of Christ to suffer for our salvation. We're, We're given a vantage point that we need to take advantage of. So, enter the garden. Enter the garden this morning. Enter the garden repeatedly. Remind yourself to enter the garden in the future. Enter the garden and get to know it so you can get to know Jesus Christ. There there are three themes that I want to draw out this morning that illustrate the suffering of Christ for our salvation that we get hints of in this prelude that is the garden. Three themes that I want us to enter the garden and study. The first is that he was abandoned by his self-confident disciples. Three aspects of his suffering. The first, his abandonment by his self-confident disciples. When they leave the upper room, you notice in verse 26, they sing a hymn, most likely a hymn coming from the Psalms, and they go out of the city to the Mount of Olives. This would have been a very familiar location for Jesus And on the way, apparently, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Quotes the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Actually, he comments a bit because the original language is a command, strike the shepherd. He adds the I will strike, which commentators believe is Jesus making it very clear that God himself is going to strike his own shepherd. And the result of that in terms of his disciples is that they are going to scatter. They are going to leave. But he gives them confidence that this will not result in their permanent separation from him because he says in verse 28, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. However, immediately a theme of self-confidence And pride emerges into this passage. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. This is so often the case when when we are wanting to defend ourselves, our instant instinct is to say, I'm better than everybody else. I'm I'm better than those around me. I I can compare myself to them, and I will not. Peter is confident. He is sure. I would never, I would never do what you just told me I'm going to do. This will never happen. I I will stand out even if everybody falls away. So we get the the interruption to this passage is Peter's self-confidence, and then we find out that all of them say the same. Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, Peter, I'm telling you truly, this very night, before the end of the night, you will deny me three times. Not even just once, Peter, and not even just scattering. You will verbally express that you do not know me as your master. That is the reality of your weakness. You are very confident. You're self-assured. You're willing to... Elevate yourself above all these other disciples. You resist the Savior. You deny this prophetic word from Scripture. You say, no, I will not, even if all else do. And he says, this very night, 
you will deny that you even know me three times. Peter denies it again. He says emphatically in verse 31, if I must die with you, I love you more than life itself. And all the others say the same. We are bound to you by blood. We'd rather die with you than be separated from you. So we get this strong theme of their self-confidence, but then as the passage unfolds, this theme is then exposed. It's revealed. This theme is revealed first when they get into the garden. We'll get to what Jesus says in the garden, but I just want to highlight this accent of the apostles. We find out that they are... They are drawn away. They are isolated. Peter, James, and John, he he calls them to himself, this special inner band. And he says, would you watch with me? My soul is sorrowful even to death. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But I just want to point out the apostles here. He comes in verse 37, and he finds them sleeping. Mark intentionally draws the contrast here between Peter's (laughs) self boasting, I I, I would rather die with you than to be separated from you. And and then the first chance he gets to reveal his loyalty to his suffering Lord, who is so grieved he cannot even stand, he is crying out to his father, as Peter cannot stay awake for an hour. And the other two are the same. And the point here is these are supposed to be the best of the best. These are supposed to be the, the pinnacle of the disciple band. And the disciples were the pinnacle of all the followers. Here are the best of the best, and they can't even stay awake for an hour. So then he warns Peter, could you not watch one hour? The rebuke is clear. Peter, you're claiming that you'd rather give up your life, but the reality is you can't even give up an hour's sleep. The the difference between your confidence and your true spiritual state is stark, Peter. Your view of yourself is... And yourself are far apart. Could you not even stay awake one hour, he says. We we get the sense in this passage. I'm I'm not convinced that this is a complaint of the Savior. Over and over again, it seems that, that Jesus is trying to give his disciples the opportunity to see their need, to cry out for help, and to not fail in the once in the history of the world opportunity that they were given. There has only ever been One band of men that had the opportunity to stand with Jesus in his actual physical trial, and they failed. Jesus views this, I don't think primarily from a concern for companionship, but primarily out of a concern that that you, you are going to miss out on a hard but a precious opportunity. And you do not have the strength to do this. Could you not watch one hour, he says. I know that your spirit is willing, he says in verse 38, but your flesh is weak. He comes back again, finds them sleeping again. He apparently asks them again because it says they didn't know what to answer him. I, I, I don't know, Lord. I, I, I'm tired. I, he's, he's trying to gently but firmly point out, perhaps you're not as strong as you think you are. Perhaps your ability is not as able as you think it is. Comes back a third time. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. Having 
dismissed their need for prayer, we then see the climax of this theme in the passage when, when the mob comes, all of the disciples flee. And we'll see a further theme of this threading through when, when Peter actually fulfills Jesus' word and does deny the Lord. He denies that he knows him. I think there's a sub-theme here. It, it points out the suffering of Jesus and the abandonment by his disciples, but there's also a theme for ongoing disciples. Don't overestimate your strength. Don't overestimate your ability. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before a fall. Prayerlessness leads to spiritual failure. The confidence that we would never fall away from God in our own strength is almost a sure indication that some kind of failure is coming. There's a contrast here between the the prayerfulness of Jesus Himself and the prayerlessness of His disciples. Even Jesus, in His resolve, in His confidence, feels a sense of need, of desperation, of awareness of the cost of what He's about to face. The disciples seem to assume, I I think we've got this. How dare you even question that we might not have this? It's a significant sub-theme in this passage that is challenging ongoing disciples. Look, if you want to follow this Jesus on the road that he is leading, especially when it leads to suffering, you will not be able to do it in your own strength. You do not have the strength. So those Christians in Rome who received this epistle in the first place who were facing the actual danger of their surrounding culture would face incredible danger in the decades to come after this book was written. They needed to hear this word. Look, you you do not have the strength to follow Christ on this way toward your own cross. You do not have the strength. Even Peter, even James, even John, even these pillars of the faith, they were confident, and then they were prayerless, and then they fell. For Jesus, this represents a picture of the abandonment that He is going to experience over the next 24 hours. His dearest and closest friends will not stand by Him. They scatter. They flee. They would rather be free than with Jesus. They'd rather be safe than with Jesus. So Jesus is experiencing a a kind of abandonment, a personal betrayal that will be highlighted again and again and again, ultimately culminating in Judas' kiss in a way that I think makes him precious to anybody who ever feels lonely. There's never been someone as alone as this man and less worthy of it. So when we come to passages like in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says we have a, we have a sympathetic high priest who's been tempted as we are in all ways but without sin. When we feel abandoned, when we feel alone, Almost always it's more of an emotion than a reality, but when we feel that way, and sometimes when someone does abandon us or leave us, we can come here to this garden. We can go to the garden and spend an hour with Jesus and remember that the Lord Jesus was abandoned. He would suffer human abandonment as part of His road of bearing our sins, to be left to be abandoned, to be betrayed. That was part of the road he would have to take. I will strike the shepherd, Zechariah declares, and the sheep will scatter. 
and scatter, they do. It heightens the sense in this passage of the Savior's suffering. His friends, boasting in their strength, will not watch with him. They will leave him to face the trial alone. His dear ones, who are sure they will pass the test, will fail the test. They will deny after three years that they want to be with him. So it makes, I think, verse 28 even more precious. Look back at your Bibles. Jesus, knowing that this will happen, says, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now that is a precious word in light of what he knows is coming. He knows they're going to leave him. He knows they're going to betray him. He knows they're going to run from his trial. And he's saying, I will be with you again. Their betrayal didn't permanently disqualify them. It didn't get them onto his bad side. It didn't mean that they wouldn't be regathered again, reconstituted as his disciples. It didn't even mean that they would be losing their commission as his witnesses. No, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. We will go there again. I will meet with you. And when he rises from the dead, he reminds them, look, I'm going to go before you. I will meet you in Galilee. There's a precious word here when we think about our own failures to watch and to wait and to stick with Jesus through trial that He gathers these weak disciples again. He restores them. He recommissions them. And He does the same with us. So here is a Savior who is abandoned and yet does not abandon those who abandon Him. He would be abandoned by His disciples, but... That was not the worst that we see in the garden. It's one major theme. But a second theme, an even more important theme, is that he accepts the fury of God's wrath. He accepts the fury of God's wrath. Notice in verse 34, it says, He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. It is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little further, he fell on the ground. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The scene of Jesus' prayer in the garden can scarcely be described. The contrast with the rest of the book of Mark is so palpable, it grips us and it shakes us to pay attention. Throughout Mark, Jesus is confident. He is authoritative. Mark, in particular, highlights Jesus' decisiveness. You remember the word that we pointed out again and again, immediately, that Mark loves to talk about. Immediately, Jesus did this. And immediately, Jesus did that. And he cast out the demon. And he raised the sick. And he calmed the storm. And he rebuked the leaders. And he cleared out the temple. Immediately, there's a decisive authority in Jesus that will not be intimidated by anything or anyone. And here, he cannot stand. Mark, it it seems, has been building this up all throughout these last 14 chapters to come to this moment. This decisive, authoritative, confident, certain Savior suddenly cannot stand to pray. He has to fall on his face. He is so gripped by sorrow. He says, my sorrow is close to killing me. 
I am sorrowful unto death. I don't think that's hyperbole. I don't think that's Jesus exaggerating, having a bad day. He is saying, I, I am so gripped by a grief that, that I cannot stand. Please stand and watch with me. I must pray. He is overwhelmed by a shuddering terror, as someone has put it. A horror, a grief, an agony that cannot even be described. It can only be peered into from a distance. Edmund Hebert comments, he says, Jesus had long foreseen his coming death, but now that the shadow of the actual cross fell upon him, he felt the shuddering horror of the terrible ordeal. He says further, unto death indicates that the sorrow was so great that it threatened to crush out his life. It swept him to the very limits of his endurance. The whole picture denotes an overwhelming agony, which is quite beyond human comprehension. The Son of God cannot even stand. He feels that the mere anticipation of what lies before him is more than he can endure but more than his posture on the ground. It is his prayer that is the pinnacle and the sacred, precious ground of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if it is possible, he says, let this cup be taken from me. In the prayer of Christ in Gethsemane, we have the highest vantage point of the greatest prelude in the history of the world. Abba, Father, he says, it reveals him to be full of trust, even affection in this dark and brutal hour that is beginning. He says, let this cup be taken from me. The cup obviously is a metaphor. The Old Testament uses the idea of a cup as a metaphor for the the punishment of God given to those who had rebelled against Him. It is as though God would hold out a cup for the sinner of the combined judgment of all their sins and that they must take it in and endure all of its agonizing effects. That's the idea of this, this cup that is held out. My friend C.J. Mahaney in his excellent book, Christ Our Mediator, says it this way. He says, Isaiah 51, 17 shows us this cup in God's extended hand. It's the cup of His wrath. And for those who drink from it, it's the cup of staggering. This cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin. And we discover in Scripture that it is intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. It is your cup and mine. In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, this cup is filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of the Mount St. Helens eruption concentrated within a coffee mug. No wonder that when Jesus stares into this detestable vessel, He stumbles to the ground. That's why there's a shuddering terror and deep distress for him at this moment. In the crucible of human weakness, he's brought face to face with the abhorrent reality of bearing our iniquity and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. That is what Jesus is facing as he staggers to the ground 
in the garden. The contemplation of the full fury of God's wrath for all of the combined sins of God's people stares at him like an indescribable shuddering horror beyond imagination. And since in his human nature he limited himself from all knowledge, he holds out the possibility perhaps there is some other way for him to obey his father and fulfill this mission. And so in his humanity he asks, can you, will you take this terrifying cup from me? Abba, Father, please. Listen, we can, we can only imagine the groans of this prayer. Father, to bear the odious nature of sin, to experience instead of your love, your hatred for sin, to be separated from you as one defiled and unclean, to experience the crushing judgment that you reserve for rebellion of the worst kind, to be treated as a thief, a murderer, a rapist, a liar, a rebel, an adulterer, a glutton, a drunkard, an abuser, an idol worshiper, a covetous, hypocritical mass of debauchery, arrogance, and moral filth. How can I bear it? How can I take your response to such a record of wrongs as I know you must put on me? Take this cup from me, please. Now, none of us grasped the holiness of God as did the Holy Son of God. All of our views of holiness and therefore of judgment are minimized by our own self-flattery and sin. Jesus understood holiness in a way none of us understands holiness. So he understood God's reaction to sin in a way that we cannot imagine. I was rereading sections of the book Pierced for Our Transgressions preparation this week. And the authors talk about the importance of contemplating the holiness of God. But I was imagining all of Jesus' knowledge of God's holiness coming to him almost like an exhortation in that moment. They write this. Contemplate the blistering holiness of our God. It's almost as though all that Jesus knew about holiness and all that he had read in the scriptures about holiness and all that his own soul confirmed about holiness came to him as this frightening, terrifying charge in that moment. Contemplate the blistering holiness of our God, the moment almost said to the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, the High and Lofty One who inhabits eternity. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. His voice shakes the heavens. At His sight, the angels in glory hide their faces. Who can dwell with this consuming fire, with this everlasting burning? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? And we can hear Jesus saying, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Must I stand before such a God covered with such sin and stand alone? Listen, Jesus was not shielded by his deity from the wrath of God. That's the point of the incarnation. 
He faced this as vulnerably as you or I would with the added pain of not being blinded to the reality of sin and holiness and having lived in perfect communion with God every moment of his life. Imagine the highest and sweetest moment with God you have ever had, the closest, most tender, most exhilarating, most precious, most tear-stained, loving, affectionate moment with God you have ever had, and you're coming close to what Jesus experienced every day of his life. And imagine the worst, most terrifying, most shuddering, horrendous, evil punishment, hatred, rage you can imagine fury. Imagine it coming from that person that you love and cherish and have clung to every moment. That's what Jesus was anticipating. And he said, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. And it makes the next phrase of his prayer Incredible. Yet, not what I will, but what you will be done. That surrender is your salvation. That surrender to the shuddering terror of facing the judgment of God for my sin and yours, that is your salvation. Not my will. In His humanity, His self-limiting humanity. In the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus is simultaneously as a divine nature and a human nature from the point of the incarnation and forever for all eternity. And in his human nature, he chose to live functionally as a human and to not have omniscience in his human nature. We don't understand the mystery of this, but somehow he's able to ask God the Father, is there some other way? Is there some other way? There is no answer implying in the passage there there is no other way for this mission to be fulfilled for sinners and enemies to be reconciled to a holy God. And so Jesus says, not my will, not my human desires, not my comfort, not my preference to not face the shuddering terror of your wrath and their sin brought together in my person on the cross. If that is your will, Father, your will be done. Three times he continues in prayer, forgotten by his disciples in their slumber, contemplating the holy wrath of God, the awful depravity of the sinful record he must bear. Three times he prays, and he finally reaches a place of assurance the Father will not remove this cup. He will have to drink it. There is no other way 
he will embrace the mission of the cross in all of its horror. So finally, he rises from the ground and says, listen, you have to go to this garden. Think about this phrase. Rise. Let us be going. See? My betrayer is at hand. Having been refused this request, having declared, I will drink it. He rises with a shocking, peaceful, calm, and control of the event. The hour has come. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Judas doesn't have to come find him. He goes to meet him. Struck this week by the us. Verse 42 Yet again, inviting the disciples. Don't miss the moment. You could stand with me. In the garden, he faces the abandonment of his disciples. He accepts the fury of God's wrath. And then finally, he endures the treachery and hypocrisy of evil. Verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. It's quite possible that this kiss is not a kiss on the cheek, probably. It probably was the kiss of a, a student to his rabbi, in light of the fact that Judas calls him rabbi, it was his Kiss of recognition, of honor, and it is the ultimate hypocrisy and treachery. Judas wants there to be no confusion about who Jesus is in the dark, so he told them ahead of time, I, I, will, I will give him a kiss of greeting, and that's how you'll know for sure which one Jesus is. The kiss of Judas is by far... The most grotesque betrayal of all human history because there has never been a better master and better friend than Jesus. One less worthy. So yet again, I would say, if you face the temptation to be bitter for betrayal and disappointment in people, listen, go spend an hour with Jesus. Jesus. 
he knows. This is the last we see of Judas in this gospel. Jesus had already pronounced the judgment over him. It would have been better for him if he was not born. It is impossible to imagine the horror of Judas facing God, having betrayed the Son of God with a kiss. Jesus has a disciple, we, we find out in one of the other Gospels, this was Peter, who draws a sword, strikes the servant of the high priest. So there, you have to appreciate there's a kind of a courage here, but it's the courage to fight, it's not the courage to suffer. And one of the things that Mark has been trying to tell the disciples in Rome and Jesus telling his disciples again and again is you have to be willing to suffer. There are many Christians who would be willing to fight physically, but it takes a very different kind of courage to be willing to suffer. Physical strength and power, there's a kind of confidence and pride we can have in that. That's what I think this, this disciple had, had reached that level. He's, he's willing to fight for Jesus, but not to die for Jesus. Jesus rebukes the crowd, the mob that comes. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? I think there's, a, there's an irony here that he is pointing out. Day after day, I was with you in the temple and you did not seize me. He's, he's pointing out that the fact that they're coming at night says more about them than it does about him. He says, if, if I really were so bad, why are you coming at night? It's not as though I've been hiding. If you remember, I was in the temple, your temple, day after day after day. There's an ironic, kind of a holy sarcasm here. Have you come out as against a robber and a thief with swords and clubs? Against the guy who sat in the temple teaching? Day after day? Have you found me? The implied sarcasm is, doesn't you coming at night reveal more that you have something that you ought to be ashamed of than that I do? In that rebuke, he, he indicates what we'll see again and again, that his innocence is revealed in the process of his execution. His innocence is exposed. Those who would come against him at night actually are the ones who have something to hide, ironically, even though they're the ones coming out with clubs and swords. If I'm so bad, why come at night? Could it be that there's something underhanded, dark, devious about what you're trying to do? But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Commentators point out that probably some of the Scriptures that he had precious in his mind right then were Isaiah 53. He will be numbered with the transgressors. He will be treated as though he was a robber and a thief, though he was not. He will face the treatment, the accusation, the punishment of one who was worthy of execution, though he was not worthy of anything but praise. The disciples, for their part, and even this young man who's been following Jesus, give themselves fully over to the terror of being linked to Jesus' suffering, and they flee. I think the strange single reference to the young man is probably just a way of illustrating the absolute terror of the event. Anything was better than being caught up 
in Jesus' execution. It's meant to reveal the kind of, in an ironic way, the shame of the event. This young man is exposed. The disciples are exposed. The point is there's a, there's a fleeing terror that grips them at the thought of suffering for Jesus. And for the disciples who read this in Rome, this is very poignant. Look, you, you are going to face a similar opportunity. Will you stand with this suffering Savior who just said, not my will but yours be done? Or will you flee from him in terror and from witnessing to his glory in terror when you face your moment? And the crowds come for you. If you do, you will lose your dignity and your true honor just like they did. And in it all, there stands Jesus. We have Judas who has betrayed him with a kiss. We have the disciples fleeing in terror. We have a mob of hypocrites acting as if Jesus is the real problem, and they're coming at night, and in it all, there he stands. Calm, resolute, determined, having the presence of mind even to point out that they are unwillingly fulfilling their own scriptures by numbering an innocent man with transgressors. unfluttered and unflappable, he has risen from his agonizing request, convinced of his Father's will, and he stands, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. Have you come out as against a robber and a thief? Remember I was with you in the temple. Don't think that your treatment of me reveals me to be as evil as you want to think that I am. And they all leave him and flee. Listen, we need to be with Jesus in the garden. Jesus himself, Spurgeon says, must give you access. Because only Jesus by his spirit can break through our tendency to minimize sin, to minimize holiness, and to have a less exalted view of Jesus than we should. And only this garden and the cross that follows us can really communicate to us the reality of heaven and hell, of holiness and sin, of God and man, and of the glory of grace. And if our hearts are cold toward Jesus, this garden and the cross that follows is the place to warm them. And if we are disinterested in a conversation about the seriousness of sin, this garden and the cross that follows is the place to illuminate it. And if we have a low view of Jesus, this garden and the cross that follows is the place to elevate that view, to be amazed at him, to study the details of his agony and his submission, and to be amazed that this, this is the only reason that we can have hope in life and in death. Get into the garden. Spend time there with Jesus. Do it this week. Get to know the details. Get to know individual words in the individual verses and be affected by them so that we can love the one who said, 
if it is possible, take this cup from me. Not as I will. Your will be done. Rise. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, thank you for drinking the cup that belonged to me. Teach me to love you more for drinking that cup. Teach us to find assurance in your drinking of that cup. Lord, when we're reminded of our own guilt, take us to the garden. Lord, and let us find assurance there. no light thing, Lord, for you to die for us. So we believe it was sufficient. But when we're tempted to be more impressed with other things in this world, take us to the garden. Allow us to sit there a while. give our hearts access to greater depths of this truth. But we know the facts, but the depth of them. Give us access, we pray. Receive our song now, Lord, because we love you and we are grateful that you bore the cost of our salvation. Receive our affection. In Jesus' name.